Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. In tonight's program, we take a flight with two stops, one to Cuba and one to Nicaragua. Our very own Nina Serrano speaks with historian Nelson Valdez about Operation Peter Pan, a program that displaced over 14,000 Cuban children who traveled alone from Havana to the U.S. in the early 1960s, whose parents feared the changes that would come with the Cuban Revolution. We'll also speak with local music producer and professor of music, Greg Landau, about his upcoming trip to Cuba to explore the history of jazz on the island. And finally, we'll be sharing the newly released music by the Nicaragua-based band La Cuneta Son Machin. We had a chance to interview them earlier this summer at the house and music studio of Greg Landau. So stay tuned and enjoy the ride, porque se va a poner muy interesante. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I had the opportunity to record a phone interview with University of New Mexico historian Nelson Valdez. Valdez recounts the story of the Peter Pan children sent alone by their parents from Cuba to the United States at the onset of the Cuban Revolution. Nelson Valdez was one of the Peter Pan children. Here is his story. I was born in Cuba in 1945, and I came to the United States alone in 1961. I was one of 14,068 children that came to the United States without the company of an adult, and we were all part of a program that the U.S. government, specifically the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. Catholic Church and members of the British Embassy participated in taking children out of the island by themselves. Parents were told through radio broadcast shortwave propaganda at the time, and this is the fall of 1960, as well as by counter-revolutionaries within Cuba, with the participation of some private schools in Havana, as well as the Catholic Church. Parents were persuaded that their children were going to be taken away from them by the Cuban revolutionary government, and that those children would probably be sent to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Excuse me one moment. I just want to interject that in 1960, the revolution was only months old. It was easy for parents to believe that something terrible might happen to their children because they didn't know what direction things were going. That's correct. Although, interestingly enough, when the Cuban revolutionaries began their first major measure, which was the agrarian reform law of May 1959, interestingly, the Cuban law established that people who lived in consensual unions and who had children and who worked the land but were not owners of the land, in order to receive the land, they had to A, get married, and two, both parents had to recognize the children they had. So interestingly enough, the very process of revolutionary distribution of land was attached to the very concept of fostering the family and fostering the concept that those children will inherit the land that the revolutionary government was given to those families. So there was no evidence whatsoever at the time that the Cuban government was going to take the children away from parents. But this was a measure whose intent was to create fear and, if possible, to get the children of the upper class and the upper middle class out of the island in the hope that then their parents will follow them. 
So this was a political measure that should be noted was also used against the Russian Revolution in the early years. So what happened when you arrived all alone without your parents as one of these 14,000 Cuban children that arrived in the United States in 1960? Well, the program began in August 1960. I personally uh, arrived to the U.S. April, April 13, 1961. I got to the U.S four days before the Bay of Pigs invasion. I arrived to the U.S. as the result of a series of players in Cuba. Those players were, first of all, the U.S. Embassy had broken relations with the island in January of 1961. So the U.S. government, consequently, had no way of providing, in a formal fashion, any kind of visas to any Cubans who wanted to come to the U.S., So actually, the right to issue visas to these children was given to some Cubans who were, at the time, working for central intelligence. These are uh, Cuban citizens working for the U.S. in Havana. So the power of issuing visas was not the U.S. immigration, but Cubans in Cuba working for the U.S. Secondly, there was the matter of getting onto airplanes and so forth. So the British, as well as the airline, Dutch airline, KLM, as well as Pan American, would be flying those kids out of the island onto Miami. Once in Miami airport, someone will come to the airplane, read the names of the children, and those children will then go down the stairs of the airplane, got to get to a car, and from there they will be sent, at least in the early stages of this program, which went on until 1963 and perhaps even 1964. The children were taken to one of a number of camps. The first camp was just outside Miami in a place called Kendall. And so I arrived there, as I said, on the 13th of April, four days before the Bay of Pigs invasion. The children that were sent by their parents, the parents assumed that an invasion, like everyone else, was assuming that an invasion from the U.S. was going to occur. I personally did not realize how quickly that invasion was to occur after I had arrived to the U.S. When the invasion, of course, failed, those children went through a lot of angustia, a lot of concern and angst because they had thought that they would be in the U.S. for a short period of time and then realized that they might very well be in the U.S. for a long time. I, myself, did not return to Cuba until 1977. You were already an adult. Uh, This was 16 years later. I was part of a group of Cubans. The first group that actually, with the permission of the Cuban authorities, was allowed to return to visit. 55 Cubans who went to Cuba in 1977. And we traveled through Cuba for almost about a month. And you were called the Antonio Maceo Brigade, is that right? Yes. Uh, It's kind of interesting because the children who left Cuba alone, we began to be called in time the Pedro Pan Kids. Uh, These are children that came to the U.S. on a company. We were put, many of us, in foster homes. When they ran out of foster homes, they were put in orphanages and in other similar institutions all throughout the U.S. I, well, I was sent to a foster home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I actually was in three different foster homes from June 61 to 1962. And there were children all from age 9 to age 18, at least in Albuquerque. So as you were growing up, you were very divorced from Cuba, but it must have, of course, would always be in your mind and your heart. So what happened when you got there after being gone 16 years? Yes, before answering your question, please note that after the Bay of Pigs and then with the missile crisis, any contact with Cuba came to an end. There was no telephone service between the two countries, nor were there any mail. And this, I know, is exceedingly difficult to (laughs) comprehend, and of course, including for us. And I should note that many of the children themselves ended up not knowing much about their parents. So I came when I was 15. So for me, it was not as traumatic as those who were much younger. 
as well as brothers and sisters at that time will be separated. And some of us, of the 14,068 children that came, there are certainly hundreds that we do not know what happened to them. The Miami Herald has tried to keep a record of all, but there are many unaccounted. I know of one particular Cuban who came to Albuquerque, and I know of him because he left Cuba on the same day. He went through the same route. We were in the same camp. We arrived to Albuquerque on the same day. But he was not sent to Albuquerque. He was sent to southern New Mexico. And Manolo Enriquez, who was his name, then out of loneliness, at one point died. He killed himself. Oh. Uh, there were others who ended up in good foster homes. I have no complaints about the foster homes. I was in three foster homes, and that was typically the case with many children that they did not stay in just one foster home. So growing up was understandably very difficult. But then you found your way into the brigade and went with these other Pedro Pan, Peter Pan children who were now adults back to Cuba. And what did you experience? Right. Of course, not all of the kids that went, or the persons who went, the, the first group of 55 who returned to Cuba, not all of us had been with the Pedro Pan operation. Some had come with their parents. And for them, in fact, it would be more traumatic because their parents, who were older, considered the Cuban government an enemy, and they didn't want their children to go back to Cuba to visit. That was not a pressure that I had to deal with, but some of the others uh, did have to confront such a, a situation. Parents that would be very upset and felt that their children had betrayed them. Now, it happened, of course, that when we went to Cuba, many things have changed. First of all, the Cuban government had a different attitude from what it had been in the, in the early 60s. This is a period of confrontation uh, between the, the two countries. It so happened, of course, 1977, Jimmy Carter had become president that consequently created a, a more propitious situation, you might say. The period between 73 and 77, the end of the Vietnam War, Watergate, resignation of Nixon, the whole situation with the plumbers, the investigations of CIA. So President Ford, of course, replaced by Jimmy Carter. All of this creates uh, an ambiente, a, a milieu, a moment that that which would have been considered inconceivable was now possible. So also a section of the exile community, the majority of the exiles were against Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter wanted to promote better relations with Cuba. And those of us who went consequently were aware that both the Cuban government and the American government needed some people like us that both sides could say, hey, look, there are some Cubans who do want to make a connection and to have a normalization of relations. So the moment was propitious. We were young people who had been affected by the profound changes that had taken place as we were growing up as teenagers and young adults. The civil rights movement, the death of of Martin Luther King, the experience with the assassination of the of the Kennedys, the fact that when Jimmy Carter became president, he was also opening a new policy toward Latin America. Uh, Carter had agreed to return the Panama Canal to the Panamanians. There was an early rapprochement with the Soviets. And, and of course, Jimmy Carter uh, had been exploring as well the possibility of relations with Cuba. So the U.S. government will not oppose us going to Cuba. Oddly enough, of course, we could not fly to Cuba directly from the U.S. There were no flights to Cuba in those days. So, yes, we arrived from Mexico, from Jamaica, and it was an extraordinary moment for us. We're going to have to bring this fascinating story to a close, but we will have many more opportunities to hear what happens next and how you become the marvelous historian and storyteller that you are. And we look forward to hearing more from you, Nelson Valdez on La Raza Chronicles. Muchas gracias. Gracias a ustedes. 
óyeme bien mi pariente Quisiera hablar un poquito Simplemente me desquito De las quejas de la gente Me di cuenta de repente Cuando leí mi libreta Que lo tú que se interpreta Es una letra mayor Y mantiene con honor Mi vida cual es increta De mis ideas y mi canto Nunca he conocido tanto Ni me ha rodeado tanta riqueza Constantemente siento pureza Lo cual me agrada mucho A mis viejos siempre escucho Les rindo mucho homenaje Siempre pidiendo que todo encaje Y de esta manera lucho Hay que luchar Tenemos que tener Únete Compréndete Vanessa Bohm, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Well, we just finished listening to an interview with historian Nelson Valdez talking about Operation Peter Pan and the division that was created between many Cuban families as they sent their young children in the early 1960s to the U.S. because of their fear around what would happen as a result of the Cuban Revolution. And right now we are living very exciting times and very important times for U.S. and Cuba relations. We've seen how the U.S. has released five Cuban political prisoners known as the Cuban Five and have also loosened travel restrictions to the island. Well, we're joined now by someone who knows a lot about Cuba. He is a local Grammy-nominated musical producer and professor of music, Greg Landau. Thank you, Greg, for joining us this evening and taking time to speak with us. Hi, nice to talk to you again. Well, Greg, I know that you have a long history with Cuba as a young child. Um, part of your childhood was spent in Cuba, and you are actually returning during some very interesting times. Again, there's a process of beginning to normalize relations between the U.S. and Cuba. Tell us a little bit about the trip that you're about to take. 
Well, I've been leading trips to Cuba for the last 15 years through City College and different uh, organizations, and this one's going to be a little different. I'm taking a group to the Jazz Festival in Havana from December 11th to December 21st, and we still have uh, room. And we're also going to travel a little bit around the island uh, to Matanzas, Cienfuegos, Santa Clara, uh, and visit uh, some cultural sites, uh, meet musicians, meet painters, religious practitioners, and just to get to know the island, and both in Havana and outside Havana. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a very exciting trip. I wish I could go on this trip. I know that you are an expert on music from Latin America, especially Cuban music. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the changes of the jazz scene in Cuba since you've been traveling to Cuba for so many years. Well, the jazz scene in Cuba has changed in the last maybe 15 years because there's been a resurgence of new jazz musicians. The the schools are churning out music graduates at a rapid pace, and part of the education of many of the young musicians is in jazz. They began in the 1980s to really push jazz education uh, through a system of teaching that uh, was actually borrowed from the Berklee School of Music in Boston and began teaching jazz harmony to a lot of young music students. And we've seen many generations of jazz musicians that have merged. There's also the musicians that began to experiment, learning the traditional jazz forms, uh, the standards, and combine them with their own forms of Cuban jazz and Cuban popular music. So now we're hearing an ever-evolving jazz scene and uh, I saw a jazz group at the Amadeo Roldan Conservatory last year playing uh, all Ellington, Duke Ellington songs. And uh, they had done a whole repertoire, and this was part of their education. And there were five different bands that were doing this. And all over, this is occurring all over the island. So there's a massive jazz education program and just amazing musicians coming out of it, both out of the academy and just also as many self-taught musicians. When I think of Cuba, because I've had a couple of times to actually travel to the island, I always think of a place that really invests and values the arts in all its forms, could be visual, could be dance, um, and definitely music. Can you tell us a little bit about how Cuba and Cuban society really um, embraces the arts? Well, part of this is due to a different conception of the kind of rights of the citizen and human rights in the Cuban society. Uh, Culture is one of the human rights. It's part of the social salary, the salary that people get in exchange for their productive labor. So the the arts are uh, highlighted or supported and are seen as a fundamental right of of the citizenry to have this, which is why they have so much free arts education, um, arts programming, and not just in Havana, but all through the country. So it's pretty amazing that even in hard times, the, the arts are still supported. Well, I know that we here in the U.S. could definitely learn some lessons from Cuba in terms of investing more in the arts But it sounds like it's going to be a wonderful trip for jazz aficionados and musicians in general, people who appreciate music, but also folks who really want to get a chance to get to know Cuba, especially during these times, and really experience what it's like to be in Cuba and amongst Cubans and to see everything that is going on um, on the island. So how can folks get involved, sign up, get more information? Well, they can go to LandauTravel.com. L-A-N-D-A-U travel.com and they can sign up. There's still a few spaces left and it's going to be a great trip. This year's festival has an amazing lineup and we're going to go visit uh, the group Los Naranjos in uh, Cienfuegos, the oldest band in Cuba, formed in 1926 and uh, still active, and visit uh, Benny More's birthplace in Lajas, Santa Isabel de las Lajas near Cienfuegos. It's going to be a great trip. Again, for folks who are interested to go on the trip, where can they get more information? At LandauTravel.com, and uh, there's, they can click on there, and there's a form to sign up or, and contact information to follow up. Well, we definitely know it's going to be an amazing trip. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, to tell us about the trip, and we look forward to you coming in studio and telling us all about it. Thank you so much again. Okay, bye. Thank you.
Coming up next, an interview with the Nicaragua-based band La Cuneta Son Machín, recorded at the music studios of local music producer and professor of music, Greg Landau. Well, it's pretty amazing to be in this room with such a great artist as yourself. Why don't we have you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Okay, I'm, I'm Augusto Mejia. I'm the bass player. And my name is Carlos Guillén Mejia. I'm the vocalist. Well, we have seven members and uh, Omar Suazo uh, on guitar, Carlos Luis Mejia on marimba, este, Ernesto Lopez on drums, and Cesar Rodriguez on keyboards. keyboards. On keyboards. And we have the percussionist, Miguel Angel Oviedo. Miguel Angel Oviedo. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to speak about our uh, work. And uh, I don't know if you know, but in Nicaragua in the last 20 years, the, the political situation has uh, changed a lot. And now the work we've been trying to do in with our uh, music band is trying to change the way young people feel and see all the things related to our culture, the way we speak, the way we uh, we live, the way we share things in, in our country. And we think we found a way to write songs and to create a musical concept. Uh, young people finding our music um, how do you say proud? Because as you know, actually the in the world the, there is too many too many music coming to Nicaragua, and, and young people need a necesita un referente. And we think that with our music, we we're trying to to be that the, this uh, reference young people need. I think the most important thing uh, of the work that we do is to give a message to the to the youth, to the young people, and to feel proud of our own music uh, in Nicaragua, all the popular music that we identified, uh, the folklore. We are trying to rescue all, all that music that sometimes uh, the, the young people doesn't hear in the radio, so doesn't hear in the, the television or even in, in, in internet. And... I think the most important thing is that that we are trying to rescue this popular music and and give it a new way, a modern right. style, right. a modern style, because that's the way that the young people could uh, identify with them. You recently came here to work on the new CD, but you also had a chance to perform with Carlos Mejia Godoy, who is of the generation of the social movement of the 70s and 80s, um, part of the revolutionary movement in Nicaragua. How has that been performing with him? And clearly you see your music very influenced by that generation of musicians. This is the second, la segunda vez, ¿verdad? Que venimos, this is the second time we do like a tour in in US, playing with Carlos Mejia Godoy. And... It's something uh, beautiful. It's incredible to see all the Nicaraguan people who come to our uh, our shows. Yeah, they feel so happy because they find in that moment a little piece of Nicaragua. Some of these people they haven't gone to Nicaragua in maybe ten years, twenty years, and it's beautiful to see their faces singing these songs of my father, Carlos Miguel Odoy. And it's important for us, for La Cuneta, to see that connection because it means that what we are doing is very important for a lot of people and it inspires us to try to find always a better way to do what we are doing. We have been lucky because in Nicaragua, uh, our uh, music has become famous. Uh, we've been working a lot, but we are always trying to f discover a new way to do what we do because uh, we, we know that this responsibility uh, with young people, it's something that we have to value, to valorar. And the music of Carlos Mejia Godoy and Luis Enrique Mejia Godoy, it's been for us like a, like a reference. Maybe we don't play the same style and maybe we don't speak about the same things, but the, the goal is the same, to create a, a strong self-esteem in young people about what they are, about what they feel, the Nicaraguan spirit. And that's something that connects us to the music of Carlos Mejia Godoy and Luis Enrique Mejia Godoy. Well, let's take a listen to one of your songs so our listeners get a chance to hear your music. Thank you. 
just heard the group La Cuneta Somachin. They are here in the Bay Area speaking with La Raza Chronicles about their upcoming newest album called Mondongo. You all have been playing for quite some time together. How did you guys come together to create music? Um, this project uh, began a strange way. Carlos Luis, the marimba player, he lives in a in a corner of a barrio, neighborhood. neighborhood in Managua, where uh, Santo Domingo, the saint of Managua, all the years uh, he goes by that corner with the procession. And Carlos Luis called us and, and told us that it would be nice to play uh, like the root music, the traditional music of this kind of popular expressions. And it's called uh, chichero, musica chichero, chinamero. Entonces, we took all the instruments and we played on the street. We had never done that. And we played that music, traditional songs from this kind of expressions. And we, we liked it a lot. And we, we, we talk about why don't we do something like that, trying to mix it with modern music like rock, funk, and we began to create like very simple uh, arrangements of these songs. And when we had six songs, we played in a place. We didn't know how people was going to receive because it was like a little bit crazy to be playing that cumbia and chichero music with very hard rock. And it was like a surprise for us to see people dancing and enjoying that kind of mix. We played in a, in a club in Managua. And then we began to do something more like serious about it. We liked it, what we did and we began to create like a concept. And we, in the beginning, we used to play these traditional songs that they existed. And then we began to write songs, trying to use this kind of language, traditional and popular language from Nicaragua. And it was great because we found that people wanted that kind of music in Nicaragua. They wanted something that mixed the traditional uh, thing stuff with the modern. Now we are working on our third, uh, third um, city. The first one was called um, El Zafarrancho. The second one was called Amor Fritanguero. And this one, it's going to be called um, Mondongo. Well, your music definitely gets people up and dancing for sure. I know I was dancing to your music, um, but you are here in the Bay Area to record the new album. Tell us what makes this album different from the previous two albums, or what was the vision behind this album? Well, with this production, we are trying to, to be a little more open to the world. We feel blessed because we have the support of Greg Landau that he has helped us a lot uh, to find the sound and to find the, the, the vision of this production. We are trying to make a balance between the music that we have produced and played and all the modern sounds and the, the modern music that is played today. So I think the goal of our work is always uh, trying to, to preserve our language and to show show to the other people that doesn't know the music or doesn't know the Nicaraguan culture, trying to show some of the language and some of the words we use in our country, some of the cultural expression. And it's very important, the language, because in Nicaragua, the people is very creative with, with the language. They are always changing words and inventing. In Nicaragua, we the way we speak is very close Similar. to Mexican style. Mexican, they are always, the language is always evolving. And in Nicaragua, it's like that. And it's always changing the way we speak and depending on the place or the city people uh, pick different in our songs we try to to show that if you read our lyrics you will find uh, a lot of things of how we speak in Nicaragua and that's important for us we try to be like a mirror where people can see things about the way we speak in Nicaragua yeah that's kind of important when I think of the Spanish language music that you hear here, I feel it often gets dominated by the larger Latin American countries. And so it's harder to hear folks from Central America. Maybe everybody's trying to use a very common Spanish to be able to be understood everywhere. And it's something we have, we have had a dilemma. Do you say dilemma? Because we say, okay, we could try to speak Spanish more like international, but we feel that now we cannot do that. Some doors will close because our language is very Nicaraguan, but at the same time, we think that we are doing something important for people of Nicaragua. We try to show the way we are. We don't try to show the way we could be. So why don't we take a listen to one of your new tracks from your latest CD, Mondongo. <laughs> Bailando y esa rosa este ritmo es con la cuneta son machín. 
dicen piruca, él dice borracho, nadie lo saluda cuando anda bien remangado. Van arriando chancho, pegando papeleta, capineando de día con el sol en la mollera. Su casa en la calle, su cama en la cuneta, siempre van alegres jodiendo en la perra. of La Cuneta Sol Machin's latest tracks from their newest CD, Mondongo. And this song is called El Piruquita. El Piruquita. Was written by uh, Frijolito, Frijolis, Carlos Emilio. 
And this song speaks about these personajes. How do you say personajes? Street people in Nicaragua in all the little towns and cities you will find always on the corner piruquitas. This is people who is always drinking and they are dancing on the streets and the corner. And this song was was written by Frijol trying to describe these little personajes we say in Spanish that they represent a lot of Nicaraguan soul. Greg, you have a long, intimate history related to the arts and culture in Nicaragua. Tell us how you became involved in music from Nicaragua and what it's like to work with new generations of musicians like La Cuneta Son Machin. Well, I was drawn to Nicaragua in 1979, right after the revolution, because I saw the world changing in front of me and I wanted to be a part of it and, and witness it and, and be a part of this this amazing transformation that was going on. So um, I traveled to Nicaragua and started living there in 1980 and began working with their father, Carlos Mejia Godoy, and, and uncle, Luis Enrique Mejia Godoy, and worked there for almost 10 years uh, with, uh, with Luis Enrique and different Nicaraguan groups and became involved in this miraculous process that was going on. I was a part of the group uh, Luis Enrique Mejia Godoy and Mancotal. And Mancota was a project of musical experimentation. The idea was to explore the different possibilities of Nicaraguan music, uh, looking at the different regional variations and kind of approaching them through modern musical techniques and different international styles. So I was a part of this project and also worked with uh, Carlos Mejia Godoy on several of his projects. Uh, that were like epic poems, where he wrote the history of Nicaragua in the Canto Epico al Frente Sandinista in uh, 1981 that I was a part of, that told the whole history of the revolution through music and poetry. So this was one of the projects. So um, I was drawn to this project because they came to me, and I was very honored that they would come to me for for help. Uh, I really appreciated that they that I felt they were following in the path that we had started. And also speaking to uh, Luis Enrique and, and Carlos Mijago, they, they all, both told me the importance of this group because they, were, they had the possibility of continuing this now that the songs might not be so explicitly political, but had the same kind of importance in preserving the tradition of exploration and experimentation with Nicaraguan folk music. And most of all, to capturing and preserving the musical and poetic dexterity that Nicaraguan people show. Again, as they were saying, the way that they twist the language and change the way and create poetry out of everyday speech. And they were able to create many documentaries, that, as Carlos Mejia Godoy did in songs like Clodomiro El Niajo, Tulacuecho, and all these traditional songs that he did, which were subtle critiques of the social order. And their music also is kind of small documentaries, mini slices of life that explains how Nicaraguans live and how they can be preserve their culture and the, their nationality and the idiosyncrasies of Nicaraguan uh, identity in the midst of this global trend. And what they saw was that we saw reggaeton and pop music and all these different styles were coming in. Uh, Nicaraguans were copying what was going on in the multinational music scene. And it, it was important, again, to preserve the Nicaraguan, to be modern, but through a Nicaraguan lens. And that's what this was about, to capture some of the elements of Queen and Pink Floyd and psychedelic music and reggaeton and heavy metal and cumbia and traditional sonica, to preserve kind of all of those elements and present this grand suite that really captured the voice of Nicaraguan youth and that element of, of Nicaraguan identity that was being covered over. Carlos Mejia Godoy was very important in Latin American music because he pushed forward the idea of the dialects, of, of exploring the dialects of Latin America. And in one song, Son Tus Perfumenes Mujer, that was a huge hit all over the world, in the whole Spanish-speaking world, he focused on one word, an invented word called sublivea. And it was kind of a uh, the way that people twist the language, kind of this made-up phrase. 
And it, it kind of, especially in Spain, it was very important because it opened up the, the idea to the Spaniards that other people than them could create Spanish and that there were many possibilities of exploring the poetry of illiterate peasants who couldn't read or write, but had incredible imagination and creativity of expanding the possibilities of the Spanish language. And this is something that they're continuing in this work. And you're going to hear words and phrases. And the idea mondongo of the album came from the word mondongo, which is just has an interesting sound to it. And then we looked for other words that ended with ongo. And just exploring the idiosyncrasies and just the way that Nicaraguans have so much fun just crane up words or saying words that with silly meanings or no meanings that just sound good, just roll off the tongue in a fun way. And this is part of what, what he did. Again, the idea was to create an awareness of the creativity of, of poor people of illiterate people who were able to do amazing things that never travel outside of their own place. What is it like to be a musician in Nicaragua right now? It's difficult, like in the most of countries of the world. If you are not part of a famous band, it will be always difficult. In Nicaragua, I think it's more difficult than in other countries, because in Nicaragua, we don't have music industry. We don't have that. We don't have record labels. We don't have like uh, music schools. We don't have a lot of things that they are normal in other countries. And that's why I said before that we've been lucky because our music has been well received by young people in Nicaragua. And that has helped us to find some ways to do some things that maybe for other bands are, is very difficult. And for us, we have found a way to be able to do th those things. I think we we maybe we don't have a, a lot of opportunities, but we are we have tried to work hard to try to take advantage of those opportunities. And um, it's difficult, but we always we try to focus on the opportunities, not on the problems or the difficult. We have received support of uh, a lot of people in Nicaragua and some like enterprises who trust in our work and sometimes they give some money for us to record, for example, to be able to be here in San Francisco, to, to have a decent stage in Nicaragua, to have lights, sound, uh, equipment. It's so difficult in Nicaragua to have that and, and we are lucky. So remind our listeners when the new album will be coming out and how listeners can get more information about your music and any upcoming shows. We work hard to be very present in all the social networks and media and we are always very connected to people in Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We have a webpage called lacunetasonmachine.com. Well, I'm sure it's going to be a great, great success. I'm excited for the release of the new album, as I'm sure our listeners are. It was great to talk with you all, and we'd love to have you on the radio program again, La Raza Chronicles, in the future when you come back. Pues muchísimas gracias, Greg, for letting us come into the studios and do this interview. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. See you later.
La Raza Chronicles calendar of upcoming events. This coming weekend, beginning Friday the 16th, the long-awaited film The Other Barrio will be screened at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. The Other Barrio, set in San Francisco's Mission District, is based on a short story by San Francisco poet laureate Alejandro Murguia, starring Richard Montoya of Culture Clash, produced by Lou Demetes and Dante Beteo, with music by Greg Landau and visuals by Rene Yanez. The screenings are held on Friday, October 16th at 7 and 9.30 p.m., Saturday, October 17th, 7 and 9.30 p.m., Sunday, October 18th at 3.30 and 6 p.m., and ultimately Thursday, October 22nd at 7.30 p.m. Your attendance will help these local artists dealing with our local problems to get national distribution. On Saturday, October 17th at 8 p.m., at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley, La Peña Chorus is performing an original cantata by Fernando Torres and Leonardo Cerceda, Life Defeats Death. It tells the story of two young protesters at an anti-Pinochet demonstration brutally murdered by the police in Santiago, Chile in 1986. The perpetrators were finally arrested this July. Justice will be done. That's at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley at 8 p.m. October 17th, Saturday. Also on Saturday, October 17th, at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley, Los Sensontles are holding a CD release party for their new CD, Alma Campirana. That's October 17th at 7 p.m. for Los Sensontles. This has been a calendar of upcoming events. Your support for the arts in the Bay Area is so much appreciated. to Cronicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles on KPFA 94.1 FM community-powered radio. Tonight's program was produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, and Vanessa Bohm. If you like tonight's program and would like to hear it again or share it with others, you can check us out at soundcloud.com. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. And make sure to like us on Facebook to receive regular updates on Latino news, arts, and culture taking place locally and en el mundo latino. Hasta la próxima, until next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Buenas noches.